We will dismiss our children to Praiseville now. Kids, kindergarten through third grade. You can follow the odd-looking guy that's moving towards the back. Parents, you can find your kids in Praiseville, one floor below us, when the service is over. The rest of you, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Genesis chapter 42. Let me say before we start uh, reading from the passage that we're looking at this morning that, uh, that this Sunday I'm thankful for, uh, for two things. I mean, I'm, I'm usually thankful for these things, but, in, but especially so. Uh, one, I'm thankful for books, all right? I'm thankful for books, and I'm thankful for people who pray for their pastors, all right? Let me tell you why. I've gone through this week wrestling with Genesis 42 thinking as late as yesterday afternoon that I was going to come up here and just be profusely sweating because I did not know what to do with this passage, all right? I'm just being totally honest. Some of you may read through this passage and you say, what in the world is going on with Merritt? It's so obvious, right? So my week has been thinking through, reading through this passage, saying, okay, I see that, I see that, here are some strands here, but, but being unable to seem to pull everything together. And in a last-ditch effort to try to find some sort of insider guidance, I grabbed a book, a commentary on Genesis, that I had not touched for, I don't know, weeks now, uh, maybe, maybe longer than that. And there was one sentence in that book, in that commentary, that made it all click. And all of a sudden, ah, you can, okay, I, I see, all right, I, now, yes, that makes sense, right? So... I'm thankful for good, solid books that give us additional insight into the Scriptures, because none of us are born into this world with the ability to rightly understand everything that we read. And I'm also thankful for people who pray for their pastors, plural, because there are no pastors, either born or in the making, who come into this role or this responsibility who are adequate to accomplish what God calls them to do. So thank you for praying for me, for the other pastors and leaders here, and I'm begging you to keep it up. Begging you, okay? Genesis 42. We're not going to read the entire chapter. We're going to go through verses 1 through 28. Let me tell you up front, before we start to read here, that for the most part as we've gone through this, uh, this uh, Joseph narrative towards the latter part of, uh, of the book, most of the, uh, the, the point of identification, like when we make application, we're looking at Joseph and we're seeing how God is working in his life and, and we're finding some point of connection or similarity uh, that we share with Joseph. So the way that God works in Joseph's life is also the way that he works in his people's lives throughout, uh, throughout the Scriptures and even in the, the present day and time, uh, rescuing us from our affliction, um, being present with us even in the hard times to cause us to prosper when we're being put under pressure and affliction, even unjustly. All right, this is a little bit of change of pace. What, what I would encourage you to do as we read this passage, do not, 
do not try to see yourself first and foremost in the person of Joseph in this story, but rather his brothers, okay? And I'll, I'll tell you why as we get into the, discussing this passage. I think Joseph, in a very unique way, he typifies Christ in so many ways, uh, starting in Genesis 37 all the way through the end of the book, but in unique ways here even in this chapter. And I think the, the, if we're going to identify with someone, it's probably more helpful and, as you'll see, more accurate for us to find a point of commonality with his brothers rather than with Joseph. But ultimately, even if you are identifying with Joseph's brothers, don't lose sight of the fact that the one who's driving all of this action, the one who's in complete control from beginning to end is God. All right. In one sense, I don't really care who you identify with so long as you recognize God's hand at work. So, Genesis 42, verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some food from a, uh, for us from that place, so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, No, my lord. But your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may go get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your, uh, in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. 
Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, Didn't I tell you, don't sin against the boy, and you wouldn't listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you that it is your kindness that will not allow your people to grow comfortable with sin. We ask that you would, at this time, move in our midst in such a way that only you would be seen to work, that your Holy Spirit would reveal and convict of sin that exists in our midst, that you would take uneasy consciences and make them desperate to find healing and peace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to get out of the way so that there are no distractions in any person or anything. And we ask that you would do it because you are good and kind and faithful to us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. So Genesis 42, at the end of the chapter, which we did not read and which we're not necessarily going to cover today, the brothers, after having uh, a brief time in Egypt encountering Joseph, although completely ignorant of the fact that they were in the presence of their brother, they return home and they get back to Jacob, their father. They find out that all of the money that they had been brought, that had been brought to Egypt to buy food, has actually returned with them. So they are all now under the impression that they have, uh, that they are going to be seen as cheats and thieves and dishonest people, which puts them in a very difficult predicament because they have left one brother behind who's in prison, and they have to bring the youngest brother, Benjamin, in order to get him out. But after all that happened in Egypt, they're not so keen on going back down. We'll save that for a little bit later, probably for next week. Here's what I want you to take note of, though, in the, past, or in the verses that we just read. Overall, what we're going to try to do as we look at this passage is to consider that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance so that we might live. I think what's happening here in Genesis 42 is that there is a reckoning that has been delayed, that's, that is on the cusp of happening, where Joseph's brothers are finally having to give an account of the way that they treated Joseph and all of the sins that were wrapped up in that. And so while this is not going to bring this little uneasy, nervous episode to a conclusion, it is a, a very important first step. 
So God's kindness leads us to repentance so that we might live. And I'm going to break this down in two ways. One, God's kindness by giving a famine. God's kindness by giving a famine. And number two, God's kindness, or you could say maybe even the gift of a troubled conscience. So those are things that we typically don't think of in positive terms, a famine and a troubled conscience. I'm convinced, though, that as you read this and you see it within the grid of the, of the entire story, that both of these things, the famine and the anxious, nervous, troubled spirits of the brothers, are all signs of God's goodness and faithfulness to His people. So, God's kindness by famine. Notice that what sets this little episode off, what gets the brothers down into Egypt, down to see Joseph, confronting their past and their sin, is a famine. Again, as we've seen time and time again, this is not a coincidence. Last week when we were looking at Joseph interpreting the dreams that Pharaoh had, and how God used that as an opportunity to rescue Joseph out of his affliction, to give him favor in the sight of Pharaoh. Remember, Joseph said to Pharaoh, after he had heard the dreams, God has shown you what He is about to do. It's very explicit. God gave you this dream, Pharaoh, because God is about to give you seven plentiful years of harvest. And God is then going to turn, and He's going to give you seven lean or barren years. God is the one who's going to do that. So when we read here at the very beginning that the famine that has come now, after seven years of gathering up an abundance of food in Egypt, that the famine has affected not just Egypt, but even the land of Canaan, and that Jacob says to his sons, you go to Egypt and buy food. God is the one who caused the famine to affect Egypt and the land of Canaan so that Joseph's brothers would make their way down to Egypt. Here's why that's kind. Number one, because in the big picture, long term, this is one small, almost imperceptible step by which God is fulfilling His promises all the way back with Abraham as far back as Genesis 15. When God cuts covenant with Abraham, He says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that they do not know. And after a period of time, I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to judge that nation that mistreats them. And I'm going to bring them out with many possessions. Whenever this is going to happen, this strange land that Abraham's descendants are going to live in, their oppression, their trouble from another group of people, we find out in the story, it turns out to be the Egyptians. God says, I'm going to do that because in part, I'm going to use that trouble and that affliction in the distant future to result in greater blessing for my covenant people. This is the very first step 
or the second step, we should say. Joseph going down to Egypt is the first step. His brothers now starting to come down to Egypt is the second step by which God is going to move sovereignly, providentially, move His covenant people out of the promised land into Egypt so that all of His purposes and plans can be fulfilled. This is still hundreds of years in the future, but God is already putting the pieces in place. So the one reason that this famine is a good thing, is a gift, is because by the famine, God is moving His people exactly where He wants them to be so that He can fulfill all of His promises and give them all of the blessings that He intends to give them. That cannot happen unless everything works according to plan. The second reason that this is a gift, this famine, is because by virtue of the fact that God continues to be working through Joseph's families, particularly through Joseph's brothers, that in and of itself is a sign or an indication that God has not rejected Joseph's brothers because of their sin and their disobedience. Remember, Joseph, as part of his rescue and exaltation, he's given a wife. He has two sons, God would be perfectly capable of upholding all of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and fulfilling it through Joseph and Joseph's two sons and completely cutting out all of the other brothers because of the way that they rejected God's will and revelation to them some 20, 30 years earlier. God could have easily said to Joseph, Joseph, I'm going to start over with you with Manasseh and Ephraim, and I'm going to build up a people from there. But the fact that God doesn't do that and is seen in chapter 42 working through and with Joseph's brothers is a sign that God Himself has determined that He is not finished with these hard-headed, dull-witted, numb-hearted brothers. You better see yourself in Joseph's brothers. And here's the key, I think, to this passage. The key to this passage is in recognizing the fact that Jacob holds out to the sons, to, to his sons, the whole predicament that they're in. You go down to Egypt and buy food so that we might live and not die. There it is. God's covenant people are under threat. They may or could die from the famine. Where are they going to find rescue and provision and salvation? They're going to find it in Egypt. But you know what the trouble is? In order for them to find rescue and provision in Egypt, they have to face Joseph first. They have to face the one man on the face of the earth that they would never want to come into contact with again. They have to be brought face to face with the man that they rejected and disowned. Who through that rejection has been raised up to a place of authority that they have to acknowledge, that they have to recognize, 
And they have to find favor from the man that they offended and insulted and sinned against. They have to find favor from him if they are to live. We know this because we're reading the story. They're clueless right now. This is, in a microcosm, what God has done through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. If God's people, dull, insensitive, sinful, prone to wander, if they are to find life, if they are to find blessing, if they are to find healing, there is only one place that they can go to find it, and that's with their king and their ruler. Jesus says to the Jews in John 5, 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. You hear that? You think that in the Scriptures, in, in this, you have life. But it's these, the Scriptures, that bear witness to me, and you are unwilling to come to me. You want to live? You have to go to the man that God has appointed as ruler and king and judge. You have to go to Jesus. Later in Acts, the apostles are going to say very clearly, without any equivocation, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Here's the first thing that you need to consider as you're reading through and thinking through Genesis 42. In the same way that God orchestrates the events for Jacob and his brothers and Joseph to ultimately bring them to a place of confrontation, to a place of disturbed spirits, God will certainly do that for you and for me. Why does He do that? Does He do it so that He can simply make us miserable little wretches of people? No. God orchestrates the events of our lives to force us to come to terms with Him both prior to our new birth and after our new birth, He continually brings us to be confronted by Him, to stand before Him so that we can live. That is not what my flesh and my nature wants to do. By nature, by inclination, by many years of training, my entire being has been geared, has been calibrated to say, when you find something uncomfortable or you find something unsettling or disturbing, you get away from it. But what happens if the difficulty, if the frustration, if the trouble that you're encountering, what happens if you have to go through that in order to find the life 
and the blessing that you want. You have a very difficult decision in front of you. You can run and you can try to navigate your way through life in such a way that you determine how life is going to be used, how life is going to benefit you. It's going to be an illusion. You are not master of your fate. You do not control this world that you live in. And even if you can find that you can buy yourself a moment's peace, it is going to be very short-lived, and it is not going to be satisfying. We need to consider that sometimes the reason that God puts us in difficult, painful, awkward situations is not because He is angry with us, but because He loves us. Because He knows that if I leave Merritt alone, I know what Merritt's going to do left to his own devices. He's not going to walk closely with me. He's going to stray. He's going to wander. He's going to think that my silence and my inactivity is a, uh, is a hypothetical green light for him to continue on the way that he's going. I've got to wake him up. I've got to bring him back. So I'm going to orchestrate events in his life to make life difficult and uncomfortable for him so that he has to deal with me. And he does that with you. He does that with you and me because he loves us, not because he hates us. He does it so that his people can find life in coming to him and finding access to him through the forgiveness that's in Jesus Christ. So it's God's kindness that brings a famine, that forces Joseph's brothers to deal with past sin in their life that they have not addressed, that has not been dealt with. Number two, not only is this famine a gift, but their troubled conscience is a gift. Listen to the way that this plays out. Joseph, when he encounters his brothers, the narrator kind of clues us in to some very key aspects to this story. Start with me at verse 7. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke harshly. Four times the Hebrew word for recognize is used in two verses. Our, our English misses it because it's difficult to kind of get the repetition and to make sense out of what's being said. So in verse 7 when it says that Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself. That's actually the same word that disguising himself is a, is a play on the recognized word. So, he recognized them, but he saw to it that they did not recognize 
him. And then verse 8, the narrator tells us again, Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Who has the advantage in this encounter? Joseph does. Between the two parties, Joseph and his brothers, who is in the know? Joseph is. Who is ignorant and clueless? The brothers. And so because Joseph recognizes them, because he knows them and knows who they are, that is one of the reasons then that Joseph begins to go through this confrontation with them. Which, as you read it, you, you really, Joseph does such a good job, and the way that the story is told, the story is told so well that, that you, you would be forgiven if you were one of those people, like me, who's sitting there scratching their heads thinking, what in the world is Joseph doing? This doesn't seem like a godly response. I thought we were supposed to love and forgive, and right? And Joseph here is just, he's saying, all right, the bat's in my hand now, and I'm going to swing for the fences. They made life miserable for me. Payback time now. Nothing worse than a younger sibling who has the opportunity to pay back older siblings. <laughs> Nothing worse. But listen, though. What Joseph is doing is not vindictive. One of the things that tips us off is what happens later. As Joseph hears what his brothers are saying, they don't know that he can hear. Joseph presumably is speaking some sort of an Egyptian language. We're told that there's an interpreter or translator there. So they're speaking their, their normal native Semitic tongue. They don't know that Joseph can hear. As Joseph hears what they're saying, at one point he actually has to turn away and he weeps because of the emotion that's welling up in his heart for his brothers. All right? But, but here's the other thing. Notice in verse 9, Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. But listen to this key statement. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. Notice, the statement is not, Joseph remembered what his brothers had done to him, although he does. He knows that. Rather, Joseph remembers the dreams that he had about them. What dreams does Joseph remember when he sees his brothers? He remembers the dreams that God gave him that said, there's coming a point in time when your family is going to bow down to you. Now, here's why that statement is crucial to understanding what Joseph does. If Joseph had remembered, if he had set his mind on what his brothers had done to him, it would be far more likely that what Joseph does when he begins to speak harshly to his brothers is being done as a way to repay them for their past unkindness, as retribution. But because we're told that Joseph does not remember, first and foremost, the evil that they did to him, but he remembers instead what God had already declared, 
this is one of the ways that we are clued into considering maybe what Joseph is doing here, even when he speaks firmly and harshly, and even when he makes his brothers uncomfortable. Maybe the reason that Joseph is doing that is because Joseph wants to see to it that God's purposes for his family are fulfilled. But Joseph knows that if his brothers have not changed at all since the time that he was 17, when they threw him in a pit, stripped of his clothes, when they sold him into slavery and left him for dead, there is very little chance that they are going to be brought into God's kindness and grace and mercy and find themselves on the receiving end of the blessings that God is bringing through Joseph. So as a way to ensure that God's people, his brothers, are going to make it to the end that God had decreed for them, Joseph will make them uncomfortable to see where their hearts are. Is it possible then that God does that with you? That in order to bring good to you, in order to bring good to me, in order to do something to fulfill His promises and His blessings to us, He will expose our hearts in ways that lay it bare, painfully bare, as a way to say, let me refine and purify and cut out this disease and cancer because there is no way for you to be able to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom if you continue to walk around with that soul cancer that you've been carrying. People have used the term before in terms of God's painful but loving work. It is a severe mercy. That's a great phrase. It is a mercy that makes you wince, that makes you even cry out at times in pain, but it is mercy nonetheless. And listen to what happens. As Joseph begins to speak, Joseph, because he knows his brothers, because he knows what to say and what to do, he knows how to play the heartstrings because of their history together, Joseph sets up a dilemma, a problem for them that is going to expose all of their past sin that they were trying to hide and keep in the dark. So one of the things that Joseph does is in light of the fact that back when he was 17, the brothers showed themselves to be so hard-hearted, cold, and callous that they abandoned one of their brothers. Joseph says, let's see if they'll do that again. What if I let them all go home except for one? Will they come back to rescue the one or are they still cold, hard-hearted people? I know what else we can do. I remember that when they abandoned me, they did it for a handful of money. What if I give them bags of money so that they can return home and say, oh, we got all the food that we need and our money was returned to us? 
Sorry, Simeon. They betrayed me for a fistful of money. Will they betray their other brother for bags of money? Do you see what's going on? And listen, this is not lost on the brothers. Years have passed. 20 plus years. Isn't it interesting that when Joseph is pretending to be someone that they have never met before, someone who does not know their story, isn't it interesting that when you skip down to verse 21, the brothers said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. That's a guilty conscience that they've been suppressing for years and years and years. Verse 22, Reuben, the oldest, says, Didn't I tell you, do not sin against the boy? but you wouldn't listen, and now comes the reckoning for His blood. And then the last one, when they stop on their way back to Canaan, they find the money in one of the pouches. Their hearts sink, and they say, what has God done to us? You ever had that experience in life where trouble comes your way and you can't help but wonder, is this because of that? Is God disciplining me right now because of this sin that I committed last week? Does God do that? Does he? Is it possible that God would bring his people into difficulty, that God would not allow his people to rest, that he would burden them with a heavy conscience in order to get them to acknowledge sin so that they can be freed of it? Is it possible that God does that? Oh, but God is loving, He's gracious, He's merciful. Yes, people, He is loving and gracious and merciful to expose our sin. He is loving and gracious and merciful to not allow me to be content and comfortable with my sin. That is loving. The worst thing, the most unloving thing that God could ever do to people like us is to leave us alone in our sin. Romans 1, Paul says, at the height of man's sin and disobedience and rebellion, the ultimate display of God's judgment was that He gave them over to their desires and said, go have at it. You don't want God to leave you alone. 
You want God to discipline you. Because the alternative is too frightful and sobering to consider. Listen to what Paul says. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Let's start at verse 1. We're going to read through the first five verses. Paul's addressing specifically very religious, highly moral, and ethical people here. And he says this in Romans chapter 2, Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. When God convicts you of sin, when God reveals to you how it is that you have fallen short of the perfection of that we see in His nature of the commands of Christ, don't think lightly of that kindness. Don't run from it. You need to confess it. You need to repent. You need life. Listen to what Paul says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter 7 verse 8. Listen to what Paul says, writing to the Corinthians, "For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. What a jerk that Paul is. I don't mind that I made you sad. Though I did regret it. Okay, well, he's not a complete jerk. He felt bad initially. Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Listen, verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, that wasn't the end goal or the objective, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation 
but the sorrow of the world produces death. Sorrow can actually be a blessing. Sorrow can actually be a gift to you. When my sinful heart recognizes the fact that I have rebelled and disobeyed, and rather than becoming comfortable or having another layer of calloused heart skin build up over that sin, when I sorrow over that and grieve over it, that is a good thing that God has brought about in my life. And it's a good thing that God will not allow you to rest in your sin, but causes you to toss and turn at night. It's a good thing that God causes you to feel grief and remorse over your sin. But listen, people, it is only a good thing for you to experience sorrow and grief and remorse over your sin if you repent of it. The world knows how to regret. The world knows how to be sad about missed opportunities. The world knows how to grieve and cry and wail because I wish I had one more day here or there to do this or that. The world can do that. The world can't repent. The world can't come, though, to the feet of their king who has the right to judge them or to pardon them. The world is not able to come with that kind of sorrow and regret and beg for mercy and forgiveness and then to find it poured out lavishly on them. Some of you who are in here, who are married, have sins that you need to confess to your spouse. This passage of Scripture, these verses that we're reading, is God sovereignly, graciously pressing on you to get you to find healing from your sin. Because if you don't, and you allow it to just sit in the dark, it's going to metastasize, and it will eat you up. Some of you young people who are here, you need to confess and repent of certain sins to your parents or to your employer or to a teacher, or to whomever. There's just no way that having this many people in one room, there is not a single person in here who doesn't need to repent. And listen, there are some of you in here who do not know what it means to find the repentance that leads to life. Right? It's one thing for you to know that God is for you because you have already been united to Christ and He is continuing to work on your heart and mind to grow you and to further refine you. But then there are others of you in this room who in spite of the, the show that you're able to put on on Sunday morning, in spite of your religiousness or your morality, you don't actually know what it means to acknowledge and confess your sin and to find the guaranteed peace that comes with a full pardon. And I'm here to tell you, on the authority of God's Word, you can find that peace today.
I don't care what it is that you've done. Where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. In 1 John, in the opening chapter, John says this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You, you need to cling to both of those characteristics. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Faithful to forgive us, meaning that every single time that you come acknowledging and confessing your sin, He is every single time going to give you forgiveness and the assurance of pardon. He is faithful to forgive. And He is righteous to forgive. That means that every time you go to your, your Savior, your Lord, your King, to acknowledge your sin and your offense, not only will He be faithful, it is right for Him to forgive. You, un you understand the significance of that statement? In other words, we tend to go to God thinking, I have messed up so bad, this sin is so heinous and offensive, it is so painful, God can't possibly forgive me. And John is saying, no, God cannot possibly not forgive you. It is right for Him to forgive because He paid for that sin so that you could have forgiveness. He promised that anyone who comes to me will not be turned aside. God has promised that we have a faithful and merciful and sympathetic high priest. He is faithful to forgive and He is right to forgive because He has provided the payment for that sin. So in the same way that in Genesis 42... We're seeing that in the midst of a difficult situation, famine, this is God's gift. This is God doing something good to move His people into action, to put them in a difficult, uncomfortable place so that He can do good things for them. I'm telling you that this is what God does even today. He will take difficult circumstances in your life, whether that's moving you from one job to another or one house or one school district or one relationship or whatever it may be, He will move and take things from you, not because He hates you, but because He loves you and He wants to bless you. But it is difficult to see that in the short term. And He will make your life uncomfortable. He will give you the gift of an unsettled, restless conscience so that you will confess your sin and find healing and restoration and forgiveness. That too is a gift. Do not spurn it.
call on the Lord while He is near. Bow with me in prayer. Father, it is hard and difficult for us to thank you for severe mercy. We are weak and we are sensitive to pain, but yet sadly not near sensitive enough to sin and to disobedience. Thank you that through pain and discomfort, And by ordering the the events of our lives that you bring your people because of your faithfulness, you bring us to places where we must repent of our sin to find life and healing and food to nourish our souls. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is harboring sin that needs to be repented of, that you by your Spirit would mercifully show them and convince them of the forgiveness that is available to them in Jesus Christ. Do that for those of us who are already part of your covenant people. Don't allow us to presume upon your grace. And Father, do that for those who are in this room or who may be listening or hearing this, who have not entered into your covenant graces. Let them know that though they are a stranger shut out on the outside, that for any who comes and calls on the name of the Lord, you will be sure to save them. Thank you that through repentance you give us the gift of life Thank you that you do this because Jesus has more than sufficiently paid for all of our sins so that we can find blessing and reconciliation in His name. And it's because of that that we pray. Amen.